And for some people, making a big change makes a lot of sense. But for a lot of people, it comes down to, okay, where am I now? And do I still like it enough to want to try and make it better? Positive psychology. It's not just relentless, always smiling, happy people. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the FedEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, Lisa Sansom dives deep into her specialty of many years, the field of positive psychology. Relatively new in the discipline of psychology, where the abnormal study of diagnosed problems has been the focus. Lisa was inspired by pioneers like Dr. Martin Seligman to explore what the study of human bodies, brains, and behavior tells us not just about how to be normal, but really to thrive and flourish, kind of the science behind being our best selves. So are people puzzled, Lisa, when you tell them, I do positive psychology? Right. What is this positive psychology thing? Yeah. And people usually say, do you mean it's the opposite of negative psychology? It's like, okay, so (laughs) here's the end. So when you think about what I call psychology as usual, you think about like lying on a couch and some practitioner with a thick Viennese accent writes on their notepad and says, you know, tell me about your childhood. And you spill the beans about how horrible your parents were to you and what happened when your best friend left you and what happened when your older sister ran over your clarinet with the family car and like all these horrible traumatic things. And a ton of things happening in your dreams and your subconscious and your unconscious. A lot of stuff sort of can feel divorced from the actual real world, waking world. Yeah. And they're all negative things. And they're generally related to things that happened in your past. Now, there is a real use for psychology as usual. I'm kind of making light of it, but there is a real use for it. And, you know, in the field of human resources, we hear that about one in four, one in five adults will have some sort of personality disorder, mental illness, something in their lifetime that will interfere with their ability to function well and, you know, hold down a regular paying job or whatever. I have heard that that statistic has gone up. I have not seen any good measurements on it recently, but certainly everybody's mental well-being has been emphasized during the pandemic, and a lot of people have been suffering in a lot of ways. Psychology, as usual, is really great for that. But there are a lot of people out there who are doing just fine. You know, they're already experiencing in the positives of life. They're not suffering in the minus 10 to zero kind of range of languishing. They are doing okay, but maybe they're at like a plus three or a plus four. And they want to know, how do I get to a plus six or a plus seven or a plus eight? And psychology as usual hasn't really had a lot to tell those people. So positive psychology comes along and Marty Seligman basically creates the new modern field, research-based field of applied positive psychology. And he says, we need to examine people who are doing well. Who are the plus eights, the plus nines? What can we learn from them? And then what does that tell us about human flourishing? What does that tell us about a life well-lived? What does that tell us about mental health and well-being? And then some of us say, well, and what can we tell the people who are sitting at a plus three or plus four to help them get to where they would like to be, to have more flourishing and well-being in their lives? 
And so that is the field of positive psychology. What is working well? What can we learn from it? And how can we help increase the tonnage of well-being in the world? Okay, so I feel like there might have been a tendency, but maybe before we started talking about positive psychology, because the things you're talking about, thriving, flourishing, these have been for thousands of years inside of philosophy, yeah. inside of religion, and there's been bits in psychology in all these different fields. I feel like it was you're feeling bad and you need help. You need a, a mental health diagnosis or some terrible trauma has happened and you need help processing it. Or everything is great. You're wonderful. And then I feel like now there's this possibility, this positive psychology thing. What is happening at that negative one to three? How is it different than I feel great? Everything's wonderful. I'm in an eight or nine. I'm fully functioning. I'm feeling like I'm living my purpose. And then super bad situations where you're having trouble even doing basic functioning. What is that? Whatever that, eh, what's that malaise? How do people describe it? If you go digging into that in the surveys, what is that like? Yeah, I think you just explained it. Eh, okay. it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. How are you doing? Fine. Adam Grant had a viral article a while back who talked about that meh feeling yeah. is called languishing. And he referred to some research that had been done. And he really reinvigorated this term languishing. And it's like, it's not horrible. It's not traumatic. I can show up for what I need to every day. But am I getting any joy out of it? No, I'm kind of phoning it in. It's that presenteeism. I'm there, but I'm not really there. I'm going through the paces, but I'm not feeling the love for it. And that's kind of like that middle of the range. And I think a lot of people have been feeling that recently during the pandemic. And now we've got like the great resignation or the great reshuffling or whatever you want to call it where everybody's like all out of like, am I going to do this thing or not? Because I've had this urge to make a move for a while. Yeah. And now it seems like a really good time. And some people aren't still aren't landing in their happy place. There's this saying, like, wherever you go, there you are. And for some people, making a big change makes a lot of sense. But for a lot of people, it comes down to, okay, where am I now? And do I still like it enough to want to try and make it better? And so there's a lot of people, I think, in that meh, languishing, middle of the spectrum. There are some things that could be giving them a lot of positive emotion still, like they might still really enjoy their family or their hobbies or their physical activity or whatever it is. But in work, which is kind of like my special sauce, my area that I really like to play in, there's a lot of languishing going on. And so positive psychology has some things that we can apply in personal lives and also in professional lives to help move up the scale if people would like to. Okay. So I, I feel like there's a, over the past, let's say 10 years, there's been a, an increasing light shown in the veterinary profession on yeah. burnout and compassion fatigue and mental health. So if people are experiencing depression and suicidal ideation, if people are experiencing compassion fatigue, where the elements of the caring profession are causing them problems, either they're experiencing direct trauma by watching things happen before them and it just starts to cause them problems, or it's the constant unrelenting stories about, we're all telling stories about how much suffering there is in this caring profession and it gets hard. And then I may be closer to this languishing is burnout which is that you're getting by, but this is not a long-term thing. Either you are becoming slowly convinced because of your own physical symptoms or your own mental anguish. You drive in the parking lot of the veterinary hospital and people describe this. They can't make themselves get out of the car or they're crying every time at the end. They just can't process what's going on, but it's not. They're just un generally unhappy. So 
in this situation where there is this meh, this burnout, I feel like I might not want to do this job. Are there first things you come in with people individually or as groups to help them assess questions you ask or things you ask them to try to figure out, do I need to jump out of this? Because the big worry is there's not enough veterinarians already. And so there's veterinarians and veterinary technicians who think this is so bad. I just want to leave. There are still things I like, but there's too much I don't like. What questions do they start asking? What things do they start trying to see? What positive psychology questions or practices might they try at the very beginning of that journey? Yeah, no, these are really good questions. And I've, I've heard some of these stories in a number of different professions. But, you know, vets get into this field because they want to help. And sometimes it can just feel so burdensome and so overwhelming. And if you don't have, like as the saying goes, you can't pour from an empty cup. If you don't have your own resources in place, how can you possibly help other people and their pets and their animals and the community around you? Like you have to make sure that you are doing okay first. And so when I'm working with a client and I work with individuals and I work with teams and I work with organizations, some of the first things I'll check in with individuals, and this is going to sound so basic, but it's so important. I just check in on how are you doing? Are you sleeping? Are you eating healthily? Are you staying hydrated? Are you getting exercise and movement? Do you have something that's fun and enjoyable every day? Are you getting out into nature? Are you going and hugging trees in the sunshine with friends? You know, like whatever it is. Like, do you have social connections? Like there are just some basics that if they're not there, it's gonna make everything harder. And we know that, like from our own experience, if you have a day when you are particularly tired and you need the quick sugar boost, so you're eating the chocolate bars at lunch and you just want to get work done. So you just put your head down and you do the work and people show up and they're like, hey, do you want to go for your lunch? You're like, no, I can't. I got to do all this work. (laughs) And so you isolate yourself like that's not you at your best. And we all know that's not you at your best. Does it happen sometimes? Sure, it does. But if it's happening day in, day out, that you're not sleeping, you're not socializing, you're not nourishing your body and your soul the way that it needs to be, you're going to have problems. So the first thing I would say is just like do an honest check in with yourself. How is your lifestyle and is it helping you to be at your best every day? And if it's not like that's a great place to start. And maybe you need to go work with your doctor. Maybe you need to go work with a mental health professional to figure some of those things out. But that is absolutely the first place. Can I ask about yeah. that first? Because I think I was wondering about that exercise, nutrition, time outside, social connections. Let's talk about, so let's just use the veterinarians as the hypothetical, driven yeah. academics who are very focused in science and medicine. And it was very difficult to get into veterinary school. It could be difficult to yeah. get through. And then it's a hard transition out because you feel like you don't know anything and you have all this stuff to learn. It's nose to the grindstone focus. And so social connections, already there's a good chance, unless you work to foster them, that those kind of went to the side. And good, ex- you probably spent too much time indoors studying. So the exercise went to the side. And nutrition, you just eat whatever's around. You're focused on the job. Whatever happens to be at your desk, you bring some stuff at your drawer. You eat stuff out of your drawer. You skip lunch. Your dinner's too big. Your dinner's too small. They already might have all these habits. And then when the work stops feeding them or the work becomes too stressful, they didn't have those habits. So it's not like these bad habits like, oh, you had a bad six months. And then now you're just going to go back to the habits you had for 10 years. 
Now, you didn't have these habits at all. You didn't cultivate them the last 15 years. What do you do? So you did I'll tell people, right, I'm not sleeping very well and I'm not eating right. That feels like a whole lot of stuff to change. Yeah. So I'm a coach. My background is I'm coaching. So I'm going to approach this from a place of curiosity and questions. And if that's where somebody truly assesses them at, awesome. Like that's the first step, right? That piece of self-awareness. You know that to be true about yourself. Amazing. What is the first thing that you want to look at changing? Like if you could pick one thing and let's say it's everything, right? I'm not sleeping well. I'm not eating well. I'm not exercising. Nature, what's that? Friends, you know, well, I call my mother on Sundays. Like, you know, that's You've asked them it. to self-diagnose. They're good at diagnosing and assessing. Yeah. So they're going to self-diagnose. You gave me the seven things. I'm off on all seven. So what's my diagnosis, right? right? So pick one. Because you are never, ever going to change all seven successfully, even high driven, high performing, academic, scientifically minded people. We're still going to change at the speed of nature. We're not computers <laughs> where you can take out one memory card, stick in another and like, ta-da, you have twice the memory now, but right? You're into to. the terabytes. Good for you. <laughs> I know we want to. I know we want to. And I'm sorry to say. Most people don't, you know, androids aside, most people don't. So pick one. What is the one that has been niggling at you that you think, I really want to improve this thing? And then what is the smallest thing you could do that would make the biggest difference? So for example, yeah. I have two kids. And when they were little, they would go to bed at like seven o'clock at night, which was awesome. Because then this. I would do a couple of hours of work after they would go to bed. And then they started going to bed at like 730, eight o'clock, 830. Fine, no problem. But my couple hours of work now starts ending instead of ending at nine, it ends at 930, 10, 1030, 11. And what's happening to me is I'm also getting older and I need more sleep. And my brain is less functional at 10, 1030, 11 than it used to be. So finally, my kids hit about, I don't know, 10 and 12 years old, 11 and 13 years old, something like that. And I realized that my extra two hours of after their bedtime work means I'm now getting to bed at 1130 or midnight and I can't do it anymore because my wake up time has not changed. And I still need that two hours of me time in the evening to get all my things done. So I sit my kids down and I say, look. Here's what's going on. The one thing I have decided to commit to is my sleep. I am a better person when I have slept well. And so I sit my kids down and I say, look, here's what's going to happen is the kitchen is going to close at 9 p.m. You need anything else after 9 p.m. You're on it. You are old enough to go get apples, cut cheese, crackers, make yourself a sandwich, whatever you need from the kitchen. And I am off duty at 9.30 p.m. If you need me for anything, there had better be bodily fluids involved. <laughs> like we're talking serious stuff here because I am going to be going to bed at 1030 or 11. That's my absolute bedtime. And so I'm going to need your help in doing that because that's going to help me be a better person and a better mom. And I'm so much nicer when I'm well rested. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're much nicer when you've had your sleep. So that was my first thing. That was years ago. That was a bunch of years ago. And it helped me recommit to sleep, just that one thing. So there were a few things I did. One is, it's not a big change. I knew I wanted to get sleep. I just needed a few tweaks in my life to make that happen. 
The other thing I did is I found supportive partners, told my husband, told my kids, I made a commitment to myself, here is what I'm doing. And then the other thing is I tested it for a while. And I also had to get firm with boundaries, which is really hard for some people, especially for vets, because they are helpers and they want to make things better. Yeah, when you said they can only come to you and it involves bodily fluids, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, in the workplace, that's all the problems all the time. That's all the problems right there. (laughs) But you do have to figure out what is that boundary and how can you stick to it. And the other thing I talk about, and you've got a scientific audience, they'll understand this, it's an experiment. We don't know if it's going to work. Try it for two weeks and see. Monitor your progress. Check in. Is this helping me? If my kids were not able to respect that boundary, if they kept finding loopholes, whatever, I would find something else to do, right? I would find another way to commit to those eight hours of sleep. So it's not like there's one problem, one solution, one way to get there. You know, you've got really creative people listening to this podcast. They are problem solvers. Here is something we don't know what's going on. Let's try this. Let's try this. How about this? Here's a diagnostic. Let me try this new thing. Let me call other people. Let me see what's working. Anybody ever seen this before? That's what you need to do with yourself. I need to get sleep. I need to move my body. I need to reach for apples instead of chips. What can I try? How could I possibly make this work? Who do I know who has already done this? All the great thinking and problem solving techniques that your veterinarians and your techs who are listening to this already have finally honed. Just turn it on yourself for your own well-being. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Do you find in working with type A, high-functioning, very successful professionals out in the world that maybe I feel a hint there's an opening for the experiment was, oh, you're so you're rationally open to this, but also this often requires some self-compassion. So the problem is you want to be able to make the changes. You see the changes. You want to be able to make the changes. When you don't make the changes, we've all had experiences where we try to set a habit and it doesn't happen. And the experiment thing, hey, you try it. And where does the self-compassion come in there? In addition to rationally understanding it's an experiment, you're going to see if it works. What about all the hard feelings you're going to have and other people are going to have processing this new boundary? Feelings? Can we talk about feelings? We can. Let's talk about feelings. (laughs) You're absolutely right, because we are humans and we're going to mess up. 
And anybody who has started any sort of new healthy lifestyle kind of thing, like, you know, I'm going to exercise every day. Day one is awesome. Day two is pretty good. Day three, okay, I can push myself. Day four, what is day four, right? Like <laughs> we do this thing. So here's a few things. And there's lots of great research out there on habit formation. So the first thing is start small. Like don't go out and run a marathon on day one, right? It's never going to happen. Don't think that you can get through on just eating apples and lettuce, right? Like you got to start small. Right. And then there's a number of other things. There's this whole field, apart from positive psychology, called behavioral economics around habit formation and how to change behaviors and all sorts of things and how to use some of your irrationality to help make rational <laughs> decisions. Like it's a great field. But some of the things that they advocate for is make it fun. Like whatever this is, is there a way to make it fun so you're more likely to stick to it? How do you make it easy so that you can do it? How do you track your progress so that you can see that you are doing this? How can you make it social, right? How can you make it time bound? Like there's all these things that we can put into place. And then to your point, the self-compassion. Like if you didn't get to whatever it was today, if today really was difficult and you only got five hours of sleep because that's what you needed to do, okay, you know what? Tomorrow is another day. And sometimes we tend to think about like, wow, like I really fell off the bandwagon. It sucks to be me. I will never be able to do this. Martin Seligman, who, as I mentioned earlier, he became president of the American Psychology Association on the platform of we need a positive psychology. We need a psychology of strengths. He's got this model around optimistic thinking. About one third of the population is naturally more optimistic. Okay. About two thirds of us, and I'm saying us because I'm in there, is more naturally pessimistic thinking. And a lot of people have been trained to look at what is it that's going wrong. So pessimistic thinking works really well in some situations. Oh, and veterinarians right? and physicians, again, they are trained exactly. to look for the thing that's broken. We're looking for the broken thing. We're going to fix it. Literally broken. And we can literally fix it. So it doesn't work so well for us. So what Martin Seligman says is there are three different ways that we can explain things that have happened to us, permanent, personal, and pervasive. So permanent, is this something that happens all the time? Personal, does it happen to me? And pervasive, is it global? Does it happen everywhere? Well, when something good happens, optimists tend to see this thing as permanent, personal, and pervasive. Good things always happen. They always happen to me and they happen all over the place. Good things are everywhere. Pessimists, when a bad thing happens, they tend to see that as permanent, <laughs> personal, and pervasive. Yes. I'm detecting a little bit of, oh, yeah, you know, I, feel, that, I might you. resemble that, that remark. Yeah. <laughs> so bad things happen all the time. They happen to me and they happen all over the place. And what we need to be able to do with that self-compassion, if you know your listeners tend to identify with this more pessimistic explanatory style, is to be able to recognize that when something bad happens, like I ate a crappy meal or I didn't get my exercise in or whatever, that self-compassion piece comes in and we say, it's not permanent. I can change this at my next meal. I can change this tomorrow. I can change it this evening, whatever it is. It's not permanent. It's not personal. I'm just a human being and all human beings slip up at some point. It's not just me. 
And it's not pervasive. It's not everything. Just because I ate chips for one meal doesn't mean I'm a total sloth and the rest of my life is going to be, you know, absolutely horrible. It is just this one thing. It's an isolated case. And so if we can walk through, how am I thinking about this permanent, personal and pervasive? And is this helping me or is it getting in my way? Sometimes pessimistic thinking is very helpful. But when you're trying to make lifestyle changes so that you can be healthier and happier and have more well-being, it's not likely to be as helpful. So then you have the option to change it. So thinking about people who, okay, if it's possible, we have pessimists, they're having a rough time at work. And what you talked about this boundaries thing, I heard somebody sort of playing devil's advocate for the anti-boundaries thing, which is, I like the fact that you sat down with your kids and said, hey, we all recognize that we all do better when I get a full night's sleep. And then let's come out. Here's the solution I came up with and let's try this. And here are the rules that again, that all feels very positive. But I think a lot of times because people start getting into negative feelings about the people they work with and the clients, they become defensive and close up. And these boundaries become, I think the worry from the devil's advocate position for boundaries is they become walls that wall people off from their team. So then these boundaries, people come in and enforce their personal boundaries. I do this and I do that. And the people who are trying to manage them say, I know, I know, but we're a whole team and we all got to kind of develop these things together. And the people are kind of, no, no, I've been told self-care and to defend my boundaries. And so I just say no. And there's more of a permeable negotiation that has to go on. So could you speak to that? If people who are feeling bad just become, they're just understandably defensive about themselves in that moment. Yeah. So so many thoughts on that. There are some amazing team dynamics that happen there. And I know that you've got people listening to this who run teams, who are on teams, right? And you have to, you have to have a team for the sort of work that veterinarians are doing. So number of thoughts. One that I'm going to bring from my team coaching side is it's really useful for a team of people. And I mean, a true team, they are reliant on each other and they have interdependent goals. It is really useful for a team of people to sit down and say, how do we want to work together? What is our team charter? How do we communicate? How do we set boundaries? How do we let each other know when things are going well? How do we debrief when things have not been going well? All those bits and pieces. And that is best done as a proactive, preventative conversation. And I'll just remind everybody, I'm going to state the obvious here. When somebody leaves your team and somebody new comes on, you have a different team. So yes, some of it is how do we bring people into what we have created, but also the team dynamic has changed. And so it can be worthwhile sitting down and doing a team charter exercise and discussion again to say, okay, let's reevaluate this. Is it still working for us? And that's not a carved in stone document. It does need to be brought out and discussed. And again, back to that experimentation, you know, like, At some point, something might not work anymore or there's a new technology that gets introduced. That means we have to change how we work and some things are not going to work the way you thought they were. I remember one team I worked with. This was a bunch of years ago in their team charter. Now, this was a dispersed team, so they were communicating by email. What they had as one of their norms was that they were going to commit to respond to emails within one day. Okay. Okay. fine. Two weeks later, the team had a big blow up. What does one day mean? 
So if I okay. send you something, yeah. I know, right? If I send you something at 9 a.m. on Monday morning, when are you supposed to respond to it? And half the team said by 9 a.m. on Tuesday. That's one day. That's 24 hours. Of course. And then the other half of the team said by end of day on Tuesday, because from Monday to Tuesday is one day. And if you send it to me Monday morning, I have until the end of the day on Tuesday. And some of these people were working in different time zones. So the end of the day was different for some people than for other people. Like when you actually get to midnight and it clicks over. So they had to sit down and debrief. What do we mean by we're going to respond to each other? And they had to come up with a new norm, which now they tested. So these are continuous conversations that are happening. How do we function as a team? And then when you've got somebody who sets absolute boundaries, like I am leaving at five and I am not taking any work home with me and I will not be checking emails and do not text me. My phone will be off, you know, whatever it is. Then we get into this other field, which I'm going to pull in from negotiations, which is how do we talk about positions versus interests? So the standard story here is, you know, two kids fighting over the last orange in the house. I want the orange. No, I want the orange. I want the orange. No, I want the orange. And the judicious parent comes along and says, what's going on? Why are you fighting? And the kids say, we each want the orange and there's only one orange. And what does the parent do? They slice the orange in half and they say, here, you can each have half of the orange. That's negotiating on positions. I want the orange. However, if the parent was a skilled negotiator, they would come along and they would say to kid A, why do you want the orange? What is your interest in the orange? And the kid would say, I want to eat the orange. And they would go to kid B and they would say, what is your interest in the orange? Well, I'm making a cake. I need the orange peel so I can zest it. Well, now the parent can give each of them 100% of what they want, right? Here's all of the orange peel for the one kid. Here's all of the fruit for the other kid. Now everybody gets 100% of what they want instead of, eh, we're cutting this in half and you each get half of what you want and half of what you don't want. And that's negotiating on interests. So if somebody says, I'm leaving at five, don't contact me, don't email me, that's a position. And now I want to know what's important about that for you. What is it that you are protecting outside of work that really needs protection? And if there is something that really, truly, urgently needs to get done, because, you know, vets are a 24-7, 365 kind of thing, then what? How do we manage that? Because you have interests and I have interests. And let's sit down and see, is there any common overlap between our interests that we can come up with creative solutions? And now maybe we have something to talk about. Now maybe we have something to experiment with and we can both get most of what we want. Can I ask in that scenario, so I could imagine, so just making up a hypothetical associate, young associate, two years out, has been told to have strong boundaries. They've noticed if they try to enforce their leaving time, I did all my records, I have to go because Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I have this really important thing I have to do. But if I let you keep me late any day, you'll just get in the habit of keeping me late all the days. I know how this goes. But you know, they want Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we guarantee you go. But the would the flex be like, on other days, are you willing to stay later? What if a person just has strong, they lay the position out that like, I will not work on these days. I will not work past this time. I will go in and do excellent work. But when I'm done, I'm done. And the rest of the team is like, 
but we're doing this important work that sometimes doesn't follow the clock. Too many patients come in, a weird case comes in, someone calls in sick. We're a team and it makes feels good to help the team, but then some people, because again, because they've been abused, feel defensive and they want to police their boundaries. How do you work that out? Yeah, it's hard to figure out in a hypothetical, right? Because there's so many things going on. But I would say as a general principle, sit down and talk about it and sit down and approach it from a place of genuine curiosity. We genuinely want this to work. And I mean, ultimately, could we get to the point of saying it's not right? Sure. I mean, people leave jobs all the time and they leave teams all the time because there are things that are expected that they just can't meet. Absolutely, that happens. But before you get there, before you get to performance discussions, can we sit down and talk this out? Can we find something? And I say, just lean into that place of curiosity, because that's another good positive psychology construct is like the strength of curiosity, wanting to learn, caring for the other person. There's a core tenet in positive psychology that other people matter. So you matter to me. Your boundaries are important to me. What's important to you is important to me. I care about you as a person and your whole being. Can we figure this out? You were hired to this team because you bring skills, interests, abilities, personality, you know, whatever it is. We absolutely want you here. How can we make this work? And there's going to be give and take maybe on both sides. There's going to be experimenting on both sides. Maybe this person like really needs to get to something, but then they'll be back online at 8 p.m. or whatever. They're going to pull a third shift, right? Like maybe there's some creativity there. So if you can lean into the conversation with genuine care and concern, genuine curiosity, there are creative solutions, I would say, more often than we anticipate. Want to learn more about positive psychology and Lisa's work? Visit lvsconsulting.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave us a review. Tell your friends in VetMed about us. And if you want more, you're in luck. Lisa goes way deeper into practical approaches from positive psychology for group situations in the extended version exclusively for our leaders community. Learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.